So June 2nd, 2001 is a really important day for me. I want to show you a picture from June 2nd, 2001. There it is. Yeah, oh, yes, that's right. I'm, I'm a young child. If it, wasn't for, if it wasn't for Abby's white dress, you would assume this is a prom photo. I get it, but this is actually our wedding day. Uh, not too many years are removed from a prom photo. Uh, and this is after our wedding ceremony, and we were uh, in, in the limousine. I think it was my aunt, like, popped her head in and took a picture of us, and it was, it's one of our favorite pictures. So, uh, so we love that photo. That was a really important day. And I knew it was an important day. I was getting ready at my mom's house that day, and I was, I was looking in the mirror, and I was making sure my tie was all straight and my vest was on all straight. And I remember I caught eyes with myself in the mirror, which I don't know if you ever do that, but it was like this moment of clarity. And I realized I was about to make a really important commitment to love and to cherish Abby and forsaking all others, remain true to her as long as I live. I knew that was important. And I've been thankful that I made that commitment every single day. It hasn't been easy every single day, but I've been thankful I made that commitment every single day. So I knew marriage was important on that day. But I don't think I understood the depth of significance of marriage until a few years later. Fast forward to 2004. Abby and I were invited uh, with a group of missionaries to go to the Arctic Circle in Russia to do an English camp, really a Bible camp, for high school and college students. And so it was a, about a 24-hour plane ride to Russia and then a 30-hour train ride north to Kondalaksha, this, this Arctic uh, city. In, in Russia, and, and the, the train ride really was kind of, kind of beautiful. It was pretty packed, 30 hours, it was a little bit tight, but, but it really was beautiful. It went from, the landscape went from deciduous forest to evergreen forest to these Arctic lakes to, to kind of these Arctic plains. It really was a, a beautiful kind of experience, unless you're dealing with morning sickness, which Abby was at the time. She was pregnant with our first child, and so she was kind of on the verge of like, who, the whole time? And, uh, and so the only thing that got us through is, at every train stop, and the train stopped a lot, like every six minutes. We'd get, a, get to a new city, and the train would stop, and we would jump off, and we'd learn the, the Russian word for ice cream, morozhna. That was it. This is it. So we'd jump off, and we'd be like, anybody who was around, like, morozhna, and they'd be like, up there. And it's like, okay. So we'd take off running, and we would buy ice cream, and then we would jump back onto the train. I don't think it ever really happened, but in my mind, it was like we were trying to catch it as it was pulling off, and we jumped. It wasn't quite that dramatic, but there were a couple times when it was like, I think that's the bell that we were supposed to be back. Anyway, so we ate a lot of morozhna, but finally we got to the Arctic Circle, to this camp. And the camp was at an old KGB retreat. It was an Arctic lake. It was surrounded by mountains. It was super weird. Uh, so, so anyway, we get to the camp, and, and we'd done camps before. We'd been counselors at church camps before, and they'd all gone a certain way, and so we had expectations. The certain way is this. We would show up at camp, and we'd high-five and kiss on the cheek, and, and we'd give each other a pep talk, like, okay, you go spend time with the guys. I'm gonna sp just, Abby would say, I'm going to spend time with the girls and, and, and just do everything you can to be light in their lives, and, and We'll compare notes at the end of the week, see at the end of the week. That's how camps went for us. And we'd spend all our waking hours I, with the guys and her with the girls. And we expected this camp would be the same way. And so the director of the camp, this, this big Russian guy, pastor guy, was showing us around this KGB retreat. It was, again, it was weird. But so we go up to the, to the rooms and he opens a single door and he says, this will be your guy's room. And I think he sensed that there was some tension in that for me. And I was, I was struggling, and I couldn't quite find the words. And, and, and so he follows it up with a question, because I think he, he kind of knew that I was struggling with the concept of this being our single room together. Like, wait, I'm supposed to be with you. So he looks at me, and he goes, you don't know why you're here, do you? 
to which I was like in my mind, I was like, yeah, I know why I'm here. I came all the way around the world to show people Jesus. Like, come on, I know why I'm here. But I didn't say that because he's a big Russian guy. I'm scared of him. So I was just waiting for him to talk next. And uh, he goes, you don't know why you're here, do you? And he looks me in the eye, looks Abby in the eye, looks us in the eye. And he says, you're here to show these kids what a Christian marriage is. Not one of them has any idea. Not one of them's ever seen it. All they know is brokenness and hurt and walking out and hiding at the bottom of a bottle. And he looks us in the eye and he says, you're here to show these kids Jesus through your marriage. And so we walk into the room, we drop our bags, and we weep. Because we went halfway around the world and had no idea what we were doing there. But from that moment on, we realized our best chance of showing people the gospel doesn't start with the words that come out of our mouth. It starts with how we love each other, how we support each other, how we care for each other, how we show grace to each other, how we sacrifice for each other. That's the best chance of the world seeing the character of Jesus, showing the type of love that he shows us. That's when we realize what our calling was in marriage. Today, as, we, as I said, we're continuing this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has said to his followers previously, he says, you're the light of the world. Let your good deeds shine before the world so that they might see those good deeds and pray your Father in heaven. It's a beautiful challenge, a beautiful declaration. But in this section of the scriptures, what we're looking at today, this section of the sermon, what Jesus is doing is saying, here's how these good deeds will work out in your marriage. Let me say right up front as we, as we dive into this, it's important for us to recognize as we come to a conversation about marriage, each one of us is coming with a perspective. Some of us, when we hear the word marriage, we think of really good things, maybe what we're currently experiencing or maybe the family we grew up in, that's a really good thing. We hear marriage and that's a good thing. Some of us, we hear marriage and it's a really negative thing, either because of what we've experienced in the past or honestly what we're going through right now. Probably for all of us, it's some mix in between. So we're all coming to this conversation with a perspective. That is okay. My request is that you be open because maybe there's something we can learn about this word together today. Let me also say this. Being married doesn't make you more Christian or more godly. Some of us here are not married and we're not called to be. Jesus wasn't married and he wasn't called to be. 50%, the the surveys that we do across Summit, 50% of us in this room, the surveys tell us aren't married as well. It doesn't make you more or less Christian. But if you are not married, my hope is that there's something here for you today about the faithfulness of God and his faithfulness to you specifically. Some of us in this room are not married and we really long to be. And I know a public conversation about marriage can be painful and my desire is in no way to add to pain. In in fact, my, my desire is to add to hope today. Hope in the idea that, that God's plan for marriage and his plan for how we should interact with people in general is good. That his desire that we focus ourselves on other people is actually a really good plan and something we all long for and all can benefit from. Because these words of Jesus are intended to guide us in how we interact with people. See, it seems what's woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying his his kingdom come isn't just about our relationship with him, though that's crucial, but our relationship with him impacting our relationship with others. So with those thoughts in mind, let's read the scripture together. It's in your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can open to it. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It would be better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. And it's a tough one. But here's my hope. Here's my hope as we walk through this, as we unpack this together, that we'll see two things. One, that faithfulness is more than just not walking out. And two, that love is more than just a contract. Faithfulness is more than just not walking out. And love is more than a contract. Jesus has this rhythm in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And the rhythm is this. Six times he points to the Old Testament law. And then he gives a kingdom picture of where that good Old Testament law should actually be leading us in practice. And it's clear that Jesus' kingdom includes marriage. He doesn't say, to follow me, throw everything else away, remove yourself from every earthly relationship. He seems to be saying to live kingdom means doing so in the context of relationships. And he gives six of these commands where he looks back to the Old Testament and then he gives how this should be worked out in our lives. And two of the six are about marriage. Why? I think Jesus upholds marriage because of what marriage can display. Because marriage is this unique relationship that can display his ever-loving, never-quitting commitment to us. And so there's some unique responsibilities and opportunities that come with marriage, not more holy than responsibilities that come from those that aren't married, but equally holy. And so in the context of marriage, Jesus calls us us to faithfulness, which is more than just not walking out. It's important to recognize here uh, who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to all people, but he's addressing married men. He's talking to all people, but he's addressing married men, not because men are more valuable to him, quite the opposite. Jesus here is addressing married men because in this time, men had all the rights and all the authority, legally and culturally. They had rights and authorities over women. And and in some places today, maybe even in our own context, in some degree, that's still the case. Ask any woman who's dealing with the wage gap. So Jesus is talking to all people by addressing men because all people are equally valuable. They're equally image bearers of God. And his kingdom ethic seems to be all about those with power using those to care for those without any. So this isn't about men being more valuable. This is about both men and women, both men and women being incredibly valuable and things like power being used for everybody's good, not just to maintain power. And he makes this point by giving this really dramatic caution. He starts by saying plainly, adultery is bad. And everybody in here, might, we might nod our head. We might say, yeah, adultery is bad. And being unfaithful to your, to your marriage covenant, that is, that is, that's a bad thing. But a recent Barna survey said that four out of ten Americans believe that adultery is morally acceptable. A University of Chicago study said something interesting and well. It said, said a third of all marriages that end in divorce end in divorce because of an affair. 
So 40% of us think that it's okay, but many have, ex have experienced its devastating effects. There's no wiggle room here. Adultery is bad. But Jesus makes a larger and more difficult to accept point here. He says if you look with the intent of lusting for someone, it has a potential to lead you away. That's what the, the words, it's a Hebrew idiom that he uses there, uh, looking with the intent of lusting can lead us away from where we're intended to be and who we're intended to be. So Jesus says that no one may call you on it. It may be perfectly acceptable in your sphere of influence, but looking with the intent of lusting has consequences because it does the same thing to our hearts as the act of adultery does. And I realize I'm walking into a minefield and, and, and a public conversation about uh, sex outside of marriage is, is a difficult one to tread, but this conversation is one that the scriptures invite us into, so we're, we're going to go there. Sex outside of the marriage covenant, even the active desire of it, virtual or not, is not God's best for you, and it hurts other people. It's not God's best for you, and it hurts other people. Why is that? Why is sex outside of marriage, even the active desire of it, not God's best for you? Well, because of what it's intended to be. Sex was intended to be within the marriage relationship, and the marriage relationship was meant to display the type of love that God shows us. So it's intended to be the ultimate act of commitment, the ultimate act of love, not based on you being perfect and you delivering on all the things that, that I want, but, but based in the, in the truth that says, I'll never leave you, no matter what. I'll stay with you no matter what, because you're valuable, because you're loved, because you're of worth. So what do you think casual sex does emotionally to the person you're having it with? See, we give a part of ourselves away. It's supposed to be about commitment. So when the act isn't accompanied by commitment, something is lost. And anyone who's had a sexual relationship that doesn't end in commitment knows it. This is also what makes pornography so brutally against God's plan. It is the quintessential lack of commitment to the point where you dehumanize, where you see a person as simply an object of desire. That's it, rather than a person with a story who deserves hopes and dreams and deserves to be seen as valuable because God says so. Pornography says that people can be used for emotionally detached escape. God says that's not true. And at the heart of this, at the heart of the being led away is wanting self-fulfillment without living a commitment that honors others because it seems easier. It seems like, well, I don't have to put any skin in the game. It's, it's, it's easier for me to just be detached from it all, and I'll find self-fulfillment that way. But the truth is none of the lusting, none of the infidelity in the end will help us feel less alone. It won't. It's not like when you start looking with the intent of lusting that you ever really get a sense of fulfillment. It just leads to more looking. And so what we hope brings life, or at least less pain, at least a distraction, ends up being a well that doesn't have a bottom. So you never actually find the refreshment that you're looking for. And let me, let me be, be clear. It's a lie to stand up here and say, hey, lusting and infidelity, it, it, it won't bring you any relief. That's a lie. It, it might, for a moment, for, for a short period of time, it might bring you some sense of relief, like numbing a wound. For, for kind of momentary pain relief. 
But it is also a lie to believe that that feeling will ever fill you up. It's like numbing a wound that actually needs surgery. And I'm not saying this to to make the point that God won't forgive you or that he turns his back on you when you fall short. That's not true. Grace is real. Grace is available. It's just that the pursuit of these things means there might not be room left to pursue humility and sacrifice and being present for others. And when there's no room for those things, somehow we forfeit something we shouldn't. So if you're cheating, stop. If you're looking at pornography, stop. If you're escaping through lusting, stop. Let this be the moment that you realize you need to stop. Because faithfulness is more than just not walking out. It's actively pursuing connection, actively pursuing sacrifice. Even if it means making difficult Uh, choices to do so. Jesus uses this dramatic metaphor of cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye if it keeps you from falling away, from stumbling away, from being led away. As Bruner puts it, any loss, however painful, is preferable to total lostness. Jesus is saying it'd be better to be cut off from something that you have found useful than it would be to to be cut off from your part in the kingdom and a chance to display his love through your marriage. So if you're currently engaged in an affair, emotionally, physically, I've got a simple question for you. What story do you want to tell someday? Do you want the story to be that the pursuit of escape was what was most important or that being faithful was? And I don't say that to induce shame or or continued hiding. Not at all. Really, I'm, I'm saying these things. I'm bringing them to light hopefully induce gratitude. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5 when he says, there should be no immorality, no impurity, no greed, no relentless pursuit of self-fulfillment. But replace those things with thanksgiving because a flashing caution sign is exactly what is needed for someone who's asleep at the wheel. And because grace is real and because grace is available. We saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at the woman caught in adultery. She was brought out publicly. Everyone knew she was guilty under the law. This is John chapter 8. And Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. And he offers forgiveness to her. He says, I came to free you up from whatever wilderness you find yourselves in. And he looks at her and he says, go. You're free. Sin no more. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for the actions. It doesn't mean there won't be repercussions that we have to deal with. That might be the case. It just means that we've been invited and empowered to live as we ought to. Go and sin no more. And if you're struggling, if if you hear me say that, like, yeah, I hear you say stop, but if I could stop, I would have stopped a long time ago. Don't go it alone. Get support. Get honest. There are so many reasons why the church matters. There are so many reasons why Christ-centered relationship matters. For you, this might be the most important right now, to get support, to get help. Don't go it alone. We have Regroup. It's a ministry. It's a, it's a Christ-centered relationship ministry where people walk in and, and they say, look, I don't, I don't have everything all right. I'm, I, I kind of got some things askew in my life, and I don't know, don't know exactly even what all those things are, but I, but I need to walk through this with people. That's what Regroup is. That's starting up in, in a couple weeks. Jump into Regroup. All you got to do is show up. 
Next week, we're having a men's gathering, and we're going to talk about some of these issues. You don't have to sign up for anything. Just show up. Just be here. Don't go it alone. Get support. Walk through the call to faithfulness with other people. So Jesus upholds marriage. He calls us to faithfulness that's more than just not walking out. And he calls us to a love that's more than a contract. And he does so by addressing divorce. In America, there's one divorce every approximately 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces a day. That's 876,000 divorces a year. For context, there are nine divorces in the amount of time it takes a couple to recite their wedding vows. I don't, I don't give those stats to judge. I give those stats with a broken heart. See, we all know what it's, what it's like to have a contract. We're all familiar with contracts. A contract says, if you fulfill your end of the bargain, then I will fulfill my end of the bargain. We agree to terms, and as long as those terms are, are, uh, are, are fulfilled, then we're okay. But if the terms of the contract are broken, if you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, then I don't have to fulfill my end of the bargain, and the relationship is broken. And some of us think of marriage that way, that it's, a, that it's a contract. If you fulfill your end of the bargain, then I fulfill my end of the bargain and everything's fine. But if you don't fulfill your end, if you don't live up to my expectations, I get to be out. But covenant, what marriage is supposed to be, what God shows us in his love for us says, regardless of whether you're able to fulfill your end of the bargain, in fact, knowing you won't be able to perfectly fulfill your end of the bargain, I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I will fulfill my end of the bargain anyway. Covenant says, I'm not going to come halfway. I'm going to come the whole way. I'll pursue you with never-ending, never-quitting commitment. That's what God shows us in Jesus. A love that says, regardless of whether it's perfect, I'm in. And that's what our marriages are supposed to be. The original Old Testament law about divorce from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, that's what Jesus is quoting here when he says anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That Old Testament law was actually originally intended to protect the vulnerable. The culture of the day, women had no rights. Their, their uh, testimony wasn't even admissible in court. And so this command was socially progressive for the time. The husband at least had to give an account for a reason for the divorce. He at least had some accountability to the broader community. But Jesus takes that. And he says our responsibility to each other as co-image bearers of God is way more than that. It's bigger than that. And the stakes are higher than that. He says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is that all about? Well, Jesus is calling us to covenant. He says it's important that you take the vow to reflect God's character seriously. See, the Old Testament law, the original one from Deuteronomy 24, was given after the intent for marriage had already been broken. Divorces were already happening. So the law was based on an assumption of failure. But Jesus is calling us back to faithfulness and covenant. But he does give us one exception. He talks about infidelity. The word sexual immorality that's used here is used in other places in the New Testament, and uh, the, its Greek uh, root is something we've become familiar with. The, the Greek word is porneia. It's where we get pornography. But in that cultural sense, it was a broader context. It's any sex outside of marriage. 
And Jesus previously has added even the act of desire or pursuit of sex outside of marriage into behavior that doesn't reflect his character and behavior that creates a disillusion of trust and honesty and connection. So in the case of sexual infidelity, Jesus says the person isn't so much divorcing the unfaithful spouse as he or she is recognizing a fact. A divorce has already happened. The unfaithful spouse simply isn't living covenant. They're not treating the other person as a co-image bearer of God, not treating the other person as valuable and worthy of love. A legal divorce is simply recognizing that reality. And let me just say, and I know Jesus doesn't address it here, but the logic holds for, for something else that's really important and needs to be talked about. The logic holds for abuse in marriage as well. If you have or are currently suffering abuse in your marriage, you do not ever deserve to be abused, period. Get safe. Get out, tell someone, get safe. And if you're being abused, don't wait until repentance happens. Don't make reconciliation your, your condition. Get safe. And if we can help that process, we got a prayer team, I'm around, tell a friend, tell a just get safe. The defining act of the Old Testament was the exodus, the deliverance from oppression. We even see the hard-hearted cycle of abuse from Pharaoh. Pharaoh feels remorse, he promises reform, and then he tightens the grip, and he does it over and over and over again. And ultimately, God led his people to freedom and Pharaoh to his demise. If you want to know how God feels about abusers, look at Pharaoh's fate. God is on the side of the vulnerable and on the side of the oppressed. And that's actually what Jesus is getting at with this hard-to-understand teaching about divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's that all about? Well, to the person who wanted to justify a divorce, that maybe would come to Jesus and say, hey, the law of Moses says I can, says I can, I can divorce. Jesus might respond, true. But the marriage covenant is intended to reflect God's ever-loving, never-quitting covenant. So if you divorce her, you aren't keeping that commitment, and neither can she. And so her lack of upholding ever-loving, never-ending commitment and the lack of honoring that commitment and the one that she marries isn't on them before God. It's on you. That's what it means when, he says, when it says he makes her commit adultery. Jesus' teaching wasn't meant to trap anyone in an un faithful or in an abusive marriage. It was meant to hold to account an uncommitted, selfish person collecting and disposing of people like objects that lose their value once the shine wears off. People are made in the image of God, and therefore it pains God when people are treated as less. Jesus is taking the side of the legally and culturally weaker party. In the regional context, this is Jesus defending the powerless against the powerful. And again, calling us back to the original intent of marriage. And we get a further explanation of that. Jesus actually brings marriage up again in Matthew 19. It's a supportive text to this Sermon on the Mount text where Jesus says this. Somebody asked him a question about marriage and he says this. Haven't you read that in the beginning the Creator made us male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one or no thing separate. Divorce is not God's plan. The Bible tells us it's not God's plan. And you know who doesn't need convincing that divorce is not God's plan? People that have been through it. Statistically, that's 50% of us. I come from a, a divorced family. My parents are divorced, and I've got step-parents that loved me well. My, my stepfather is a, a special man who deserves a special claim to me being the person I am today. But I can tell you about the hurt and the confusion and the disappointment that comes from divorce. Divorce is not a no-harm proposition. It's not. It's not God's plan. So like we saw last week when Jesus talks about uh, resentment and strife that can come in, in relationships, when there is brokenness in your marriage, when there's lack of faithfulness, when there's lack of covenant in your marriage, what should we do? We should seek repentance. We should seek reconciliation. Because he wouldn't make one point to supersede the next point. And I know for some of you, maybe you've walked through that. You've walked through that reconciliation process, or, or maybe you are walking through that res- reconciliation process, and that can be so challenging. And this is important, this process, this repentance and restoration and, and reconciliation as you enter into that. It's not cheap grace. It's never brushing it under the rug. It's actually far from that. It's all about dealing honestly with where there hasn't been faithfulness in your marriage and seeing where God might be in the continued business of bringing dead things to life and bringing dead hearts to life. And if divorce is part of your past, either by your choosing or someone else's choosing, God is in the redemption business. He brings beauty from ashes. When and where we're broken, Jesus will lovingly and gently pick up the pieces so that we can be put back together. He'll offer his whole life so that we can be whole. So faithfulness and covenant, that's God's plan. And he actually shows us the way. Paul in Ephesians 5, a little further in the chapter after he says, hey, you should have thanksgiving because grace is real, he gives us this picture. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And sometimes we'll stop it there, which is a really, really dangerous thing to do because Paul doesn't stop there. A couple verses later, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ died for the church. So both husbands and wives are called into mutual service and respect of each other. Jesus gave everything for his bride, and we should do the same. Is it possible that marriage isn't supposed to be mostly about you? It's supposed to be mostly about the other. Something I say at every wedding I do uh, in in the middle of the wedding, I'll, I'll look at the groom, and I'll look him in the eye, and I'll say, it's your job to outserve your wife. And I'll, I'll look at the bride. And I'll say, it's your job to outserve your husband. And then I'll look at them together and I'll say, if you make your life about that, it will go well with you. So what if we saw marriage as a way to display the character of God? Not seeing our spouse as a way to fulfill us, but our marriage as a way to display God's sacrificial love. If we do that, marriage can be extraordinary. If you do that, your marriage can be extraordinary. It can end cycles of brokenness. It can show grace that this world longs for. It can be a way to show relationships that are all about serving others. It can bring light from darkness. If you are married, 
you're here to show the world Jesus through your marriage. And you can. If you see faithfulness as more than just not walking out, but you actively choose faithfulness. If you see love as more than just a contract, if you actively choose covenant. And when we see it, it is a beautiful thing. I was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and I saw a story about a guy named Luther. Luther Younger from Rochester, New York. He's a 99-year-old man. And guessing by all the likes and shares, a million and a half of you have seen this story as well. Here's a picture of Luther. Luther uh, has been married for 55 years to Waverly, uh, his, his wife, and he adores her. Waverly is pretty much constantly in and out of the hospital. Nine years ago, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so she's currently in the hospital, and the, the news kind of came by to tell his story. Every single single day, he walks three miles to the hospital to go see his wife, and then at the end of the day, three miles back home. Rain, sleet, snow, whatever, heat, doesn't matter. He, he does it every day. And he said, I don't want to wait for the bus. I don't want to wait for my daughter to get off work. I want to go see my wife. And so that's what he does every day. And so there's a video that, that came with this little article. And uh, he was like, here's how I prep. And so he got down and he did like a bunch of push, like a bunch of push-ups. 99 years old. He was a former military man. He's like a bunch of push-ups and they were perfect. And I was like, teach me. And so anyway, so like a bunch of push-ups. And then it, and he hops up and he goes, okay, let's go. And he grabs a backpack. And right as he's heading to the door, he looks back. He turns around and looks dead into the camera. And he goes, I don't want to talk about nothing but my wife. And so that's what he does for like three miles, this, this walk. Here's some of the things that he said. She's a beautiful lady. She treats me as the person I'm supposed to be. She made a man out of me, he said. That's why I love her, because she's tough. She's not weak. That's the kind of woman I want. I like Luther a lot. When he sees the hospital, it's 90 degrees outside, and he's you know, dressed in full. Sees the hospital, he runs. He takes off running across the street. He almost gets hit by a car in the video. I got all scared. Uh, but he runs across, and he runs up to her room. And in her room, that's the first thing. He walks in, boom, gives her a kiss on the cheek. And then he looks at the camera again, and he said, that's my cup of tea. And she's sweet, too. I love that. I, lo I told you, Luther's the best. After some time, he spends time with her, prays with her. Says, I think it's time for her to rest. He walks the three miles back home to get ready to do it all again. You know what the title of the article was? Here's the title of the article. 99-year-old man walks six miles a day to visit his wife in the hospital. Proving true love exists. Proving true love exists. True love exists. We all want to be loved by, like that. We all want to think that if we were Waverly with nothing to give back, we'd be loved anyway. And I think this story speaks to a longing that we all have built into us to hear, I love you, and I won't quit. To hear, I choose to love you, I choose to hope, I choose to believe, I choose you as mine because you're beautiful. I think this story speaks to us because it points to something that makes us better than we are. So maybe you want that story for your life. Maybe you're like, man, I want to be loved like that. I've never really felt loved like that. I want to be loved like that. Or maybe you walked in and you say, I want my marriage to reflect that. I would really love for marriage to reflect that. But most of the time, it's pretty far away. What am I supposed to do? Look at the faithfulness and the covenant love of Jesus. When we turn to him, what do we do? We see a sacrifice, him sacrificing his whole life to show how greatly we are loved. Again, Paul in Ephesians 5 says he gave his life for her, his church, to make her holy and clean, 
washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a radiant bride, without a spot or a wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. When and where we are broken, Jesus will lovingly and gently pick up the pieces so that we can be put back together. He offers his whole life so that we can be whole. Treating people like objects, seeking self-benefit, even if it means everybody else in your life is shrapnel, or walking out and giving up when things don't go the way you want, it won't fix us. It won't. It won't fulfill us. It won't. His faithfulness to us, Jesus' faithfulness to us, his covenant love for us, that's what we're longing for. That's the only thing that will fill us up, and it's the only thing that will change us. And it's his faithfulness and his love that shows us the way to kingdom living. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word, the challenge of your word, the picture of who we are supposed to be, all wrapped in your faithful covenant love. God, we don't deserve it. You could have walked away a long time ago, but you didn't. And you won't. And we're so grateful for that. I pray that that's where we start. That we start with gratitude for who you are and allow that to change our hearts and shape our actions. That whether we're married or not, that we would seek to be people who are faithful. We seek to be people who love, but especially where there is a marriage relationship, even if it's challenging that to the end and as much as it depends on us, we would be faithful, actively faithful, not just not walking out, but pursuing love that says, I choose to see you as beautiful. I choose to never leave you nor forsake you. I pray that we would choose that type of love and that we would be empowered to do so by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.